Hello, and welcome to episode 53 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com, and back with me this week is my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hey, Jeff. Carl is also the host of the 30 Love podcast with over 100 episodes with guests from various points around the tennis world, so be sure to check that out as well. Um, we are recording this on Monday, March 18th, maybe 12 hours or so after the conclusion of the Indian Wells Masters and the Indian Wells Premier WTA event. So let's start there with the men's event. Roger Federer was in the final. We just narrowly missed a Federer-Nadal matchup in the semifinal. But these were not the main stories, at least in terms of the, the trophy presentation. Of course, in, in most corners of the internet talking about tennis, Federer and Nadal will always be the main story. But the winner was Dominic Team. This is his first Masters title on a hard court, definitely his biggest hard court title and what feels like a pretty big step forward for him. Um, Carl, we've talked about him a lot in the past as a clay court wizard, probably one of the top three, top four clay court players active right now. Do you think this this represents a, a new, better Dominic team who can contend for the biggest titles on hard courts? I think we need a little more evidence, but as far as two weeks or really eight or ten days for the top seeds go, this was a really good outcome for team. I mean, beating Federer on a hard court is a really big deal, at least based on your ELO ratings, and... It's it's just so far beyond what we've seen from team in terms of actual wins. Like he he looked maybe almost as good in taking Rafa to a fifth set tiebreaker at the U.S. Open last year, but he just hadn't come anywhere near a result like winning a Masters event on a hard court before. And while his his route to Federer wasn't that impressive, especially because. Gael Monfils withdrew ahead of their quarterfinal. It was still a very good result to beat Raonic in in the semi, uh, and he, you know, hadn't dropped a set before the semi as well. So, not not the hardest or even in the top 50% of difficulty for a Masters 1000, but beating Federer in the final uh, definitely a, a giant result for team. Yeah, I it, I also noticed, as you say, with team, it wasn't a particularly tough route to the final. Same thing for Federer. He got the, the walkover in the semifinals against Nadal, and his quarterfinal opponent was uh, Hubert Hercoc, who is perhaps an up-and-coming star, but certainly not there yet. So Federer has had much harder paths to, to, um, to, those, sorts of, those, those sorts of titles. I'm curious about, about team. You mentioned before we started recording that, that you watched a good chunk of of the final match it team is known for playing very defensively far behind the baseline on clay and that has been known to hurt him on hard court did you notice him playing more aggressively or maybe a style better suited to the surface uh it was mixed it was really noticeable for instance on second serve returns that he did what Rafa will often do on hard courts and stand way back. And it didn't seem like Federer was punishing him that much, but it, you know, Federer was mostly winning his service games easily. Uh, and team was doing 
what many players also do, which is after returning from that far back, running straight up into the court. Uh, so he was close to the baseline. So later in rallies, he was taking a more aggressive position. And there was a, a very crucial stretch of play uh, late in the match, which turned very much on this question of how aggressively team was position, positioning himself. Federer on successive points hit drop shots at five all and both times did it sort of right out of the playbook of facing team on any surface that though he's fast, he's starting from a point very far back. And both times team got to the ball and hit forehand, you know, cross court dink winners and went from 30, 15 to 30, 40 broke on the next point, served out the match and the title in the next game. So I think those points maybe crystallized that he was slightly further up in the court, as well as maybe crystallizing that the drop shots weren't as good as they needed to be and weren't the the right choice necessarily. But I think between getting to those balls and then showing off some touch in in putting them away for winners when they weren't easy, uh, team showed some pretty good tactics and skill. So one of the comments I heard a lot during the first week of Indian Wells was people were under the impression that the surface was playing quite slowly. And Indian Wells is, I don't think it's known as a really slow hardcore normally, but it's known as maybe in the slower half of hardcore events. And if if true, that would offer some explanation for why it was a breakthrough for Team. I mean, certainly a different story than if Team had won his first hardcore Masters in Paris or something. Uh, on the indoor hard courts there. Do you think that was a factor that the surface was tilted a bit in team's favor instead of Federer's? Maybe a bit. Uh, It's an interesting kind of slow where it's, it's very dry and hot. So the, the court itself is slow, but the balls are known to fly. And if the, the stats at the end of the match, at least as tallied by tennis TV suggested that, team was matching Federer in terms of winners and it certainly felt in rallies like he was often the aggressor and he was the first to unleash a really aggressive shot like a a backhand down the line changing the the pattern of play and you know he he was doing it often as I was saying like pretty pretty close up in the court at least relative to what we're used to. So it wasn't the case of him being a a clay court grinder on, on a slow hard court that was playing like a clay court. Um, and he, I think we're in agreement on this, that, I mean, this is an encouraging result for team. It's not, a, it, it doesn't change everything. I mean, we've seen him play very competitive matches on hard courts before on big stages. Like you mentioned, the Nadal match from the U S open, uh, and he didn't have the, the toughest path to the title here. So, so, I mean, we're not going to put him in the, the top three of hardcore players right now. That seems a little bit premature, but Looking at it from the opposite perspective, this seemed to me like a very winnable match for Roger Federer. I mean, he he just came off winning Dubai. I'm assuming he was favored. I didn't look at the betting line before the match, but I'm assuming he was a favorite going into the final. Um, does it adjust your your estimate of Roger Federer knowing that he wasn't able to convert this final? Do you, curious, do you know what your forecast said? Uh, I don't, but I have it close a few clicks away uh, okay. apologize for the clicky sounds that i generally try to avoid well i'll just recording. i'll talk over them no I, <laughs> no it's <laughs> i was trying to talk over them myself but it, yeah my my forecast had federer at 76 percent. it's actually a little more aggressive than i would have anticipated but 
as you pointed out, Carl, Maelo still likes him a lot on hard courts, and Maelo is also not that optimistic about team on hard courts, at least until today's update with Indian Wells in the system. Yeah, I I was just wondering where where team fit now. Wow, he's he's quite high on hard courts now. It looks like he's. Uh, seventh in in the world, one spot behind Monfils, who he avoided playing because of that that walkover. You know, for Federer, I think that it's definitely a disappointing result. 76% doesn't surprise me because of his hardcore prowess and, and team's lack of it coming into the match. He wasn't blown out. So you could say, well, it was a 50-50 match. It was 7-5 in the third set. He could have won just as easily. But I think based on their relative uh, measured abilities going into the match, anything that was close to 50-50 was a disappointing result for Federer. Um, you know, you could you could also say, well, but for the tournament as a whole, he made it to the final. He just won a 500. But if you're just asking about the final, it does take him down a notch or two, partly because he hasn't had that many opportunities even to play top 10 players outside the tour finals last year, um, which was an indoor hard court. He hasn't even like gotten to the stage of tournaments where it's come up that he would face someone with a ranking as high as teams. So we don't have that much data recently on how he's measuring up. And some of, some of what we do have is disappointing. So I think this, if he had won the title, it would have been easy to just say, well, he's he had a tough, close loss at the Australian Open that easily could have won, and since then he hasn't been beaten, and maybe he's even back in the mix for number one or for slams. But I think this match reminds us, like, he's had a lot of mediocre days in big matches in the last year, and some of those big matches were only big because he had mediocre days. Like, no one looked at the John Millman match at the U.S. Open as a big match, but Federer not playing up nearly up to his standards turned that into a big match that he then lost. And I think that's going to make it tougher for him to even get to finals, let alone win them. Yeah, and it would have been interesting to see what would have come out of that Federer and Nadal semifinal that didn't end up happening because of Nadal's injury. Um, yeah, to your point, there's there's not a lot of in, encouraging results from this tournament. It's nice that he had a pretty routine third round win over Stan Wawrinka. I mean that it's always possible to hit Wawrinka on a good day, even even now, and and get blown out. Maybe not blown out, but easily lose the match. But that's the toughest opponent he he had to face on court until the final against Team. So so that trend continues of of not really having to face down the top players. And that seems like a bit of a, a double-edged sword when you're talking about the his chances at number one. Like, yes, it's not encouraging, but on the other hand, if he's not having to play the best players, that says something about the other best players as well. Um, I mean, as I've said, Nadal had to withdraw, so that's on Rafa. That's not on Roger that that match didn't happen. Uh, he, Novak Djokovic wasn't in the mix because he lost in his second match against Philip Kohlschreiber, of all people. Um so, I mean, the, the opportunity for number one may not be because Roger Federer returns to 2005 form, but because of some general weakening at the top of the game. And, I mean, it, it, it feels like it's probably too soon to look at a loss like Djokovic has lost to Cole Schreiber and say that maybe he's not so dominating after all. I mean, what's, what's your take? Is this, is this total aberration or is, is this like a warning that Djokovic is getting old and maybe not a dominant number one like we thought he might be. I mean, what do you take away from that upset? 
I mean, I think you hit it on the head when you said that one way to read Federer's lack of matches against top players is the inconsistency of top players. And Djokovic has given a few indications in his otherwise spectacular last 10 months or so that he is not at peak Djokovic levels, but that the tour level overall is low enough, or at least the tour level within the top 10 or top 20 or so is low enough that he can still dominate and win many of the, of the big titles without being at that same dominant level. And, you know, I just look at his last, basically all of his events since Shanghai, he won the Australian open, which was the biggest event by far and, and a great tournament for him. But, and, and, you know, he, he blew out Nadal in the final in a way that made people, suggests that Djokovic has solved tennis forever and, and no one can play with him and so on. But looked at it another way, it was one of his last five events and the only one that he won. And in the others, he lost matches that seemed kind of unlosable. I mean, I, surely Alex Verov as number five in the world at the time is a threat to anybody at the tour finals, but it was still pretty surprising that Djokovic lost in straight sets to Zverev. Uh, it was surprising that he lost to Batista Agut in Doha. Batista Agut's a great player, but a notch or two below Djokovic. And then it was surprising that he lost to Karin Kachanov in, in Paris, also in straight sets. So, yeah, Cole Schreiber is—you covered this a lot in the last podcast. We don't have to do another ode to the greatness of, of Cole Schreiber, but he certainly is dangerous to any player, but also is not expected to beat— Djokovic and definitely not peak Djokovic. So I think like Federer, Djokovic is vulnerable at times. And the flip side of that is he could go on to win the next tournament without, without a problem. Um, and certainly could win any and all of the grand slams this year as well, even as he's vulnerable in matches that are, that are surprising. And, and that's great. I mean, it makes the tour much more interesting. So would you agree that at this point, yeah, I, I, I think what you said is right that despite Djokovic's moments of brilliance, he's he's nowhere near where he has been in the past. If we th- we think back to peak Big Four, I'm not exactly sure what year that would be, but whenever the Big Four were at their collective best, do you think that all four of them are better than any player right now? So I would flip this on you because you've done research on this more than I have. The the counter argument and the argument going in my head when I was saying that Djokovic isn't peak Djokovic is that the tour on average is always getting better and harder. So maybe number five right now is better than any of the big four were at their peak. I don't think that's right because I don't think enough time has elapsed. And I think there are some some dips even within that overall long term trend of, of rising ability. But what would you say your findings would say about comparing 2011 or 2012 to today in terms of overall ATP level. Yeah, I'm I'm not sure. Um, it's it's something I should look back at. I haven't run numbers on something like that since closer to 2011 than today. And at that point, I found something like like you characterized it correctly that it, at at that point. I think my numbers were saying that if you adjust for difficulty level across years, David Ferrer was the fifth best player of all time uh, in the sense that 20, I don't know, 2013 David Ferrer would beat 1990, whatever Andre Agassi, or uh, I'm not, I'm not sure who else would be near the top of that conversation, but 
Um, the point wasn't that David Ferrer is the fifth best player of all time. It was that if you adjust for the overall ability level of the tour, like if you could, if you could put 2013 David Ferrer in a time machine and send him back to the 1995 U.S. Open or 1995 Roland Garros, he would be the favorite, which says more about the evolution of men's tennis than it does about David Ferrer. And in in general, yeah, that's what happens over time. Like if I had run that same study in 1995, probably could have said the same thing about whoever. ATP number five was in 1985 compared to the field in 1985. Uh, but yeah, you might be right. This might be a time where that's that's not the case. I mean, it, it's it's a really hard topic to dig into. And I think a, a lot of people in a lot of sports have gone into it with the best of intentions and ended up just kind of mired in all of the variables and all of the unmet expectations that come along with it. Uh, because you want to be able to go into these discussions and come up with an algorithm that ranks Sampras, Federer, Agassi, Laver, Djokovic, and it all, and comes up with some slight twist on sort of fans' top ten of all time. And that's never what it comes out to be. <laughs> you could get something with Laver as number one, depending on the, the way you set up the algorithm, or you could get something with Laver as worse than any member of the top 100 right now. So the I don't want to I don't want to finish this thought by suggesting that the results are meaningless, but it's important to remember that the assumptions are going to reflect exactly what you're trying to find, like whether you're trying to measure peak relative to the field or actual tennis playing skill at a moment in time, which are very very different things. Uh, so it's all of which to say it's a very difficult question to answer, and I'd, I'd love to know how. Well, the current number five right now is Roger Federer, so it's not a great example. But I'd love to know how Stefano Tsitsipas, for instance, compares to the ATP of ten years ago, or how Andy Murray of ten years ago would compare to the ATP of today. Uh, but we're at this point really just left with speculating about that. So putting aside the era adjustment which, as you point out, is incredibly complicated. Yeah, I do think the big four at, at the peak of big four collectively would would be would would dominate today's ATP. What do you think? Yeah, I, th- I think so, too. Um, and one of the reasons I'd love to get some answers on on the, the, the stuff I just explained was unanswerable is I'm fascinated by thinking through Andy Murray's place in tennis history because he doesn't have a lot of slams. Um, maybe not even a lot of overall titles for someone of his caliber. Uh, but I think I think you could make a decent argument that he's the fourth best player of all time. Uh, and he just happened to come along at exactly the wrong moment. I mean, I know there's tons of arguments you could make on the opposite side of the case for any number of players or just for mathematical reasons. But, um, but yeah, I think that the, the, the big three were... I mean, we're so much better then than they are now, and I think Murray probably was was as well, um, which which really makes you wonder what's coming next. I mean, it, 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 you've mentioned Zverev in our last couple of podcasts, and Zverev has been out of the spotlight for a while now. I mean, he he lost to Jan Lennard Struff this week, and a really bad loss for him. But I think that was because he was sick. It wasn't because he's just playing bad tennis these days. Uh, 
but Zverev's interesting, Kachanov's interesting, Tsitsipas has been surging this year. I mean, there's a, a, a lot of talent here, but if we if we accept this is a bit of a weak era and they're still not beating the 30-somethings, including 37-year-old Roger Federer, I mean, it, it makes you wonder whether the weak era is ending or whether this is just another another sort of Lost Boys generation with a different cast of, of Lost Boys. Or if everyone looks like Lost Boys relative to them, especially while they're still playing. Yeah. Well, then, and it comes back to how well we're how well we're doing at estimating the aging curve. I mean, I've we've talked about that in a few recent podcasts, and I've written about that. That it's it's easy to assume that Federer is well off of his peak, and he probably is, and and Djokovic is off of his peak as well. But it's easy to say like we can't be that impressed because he just lost a thirty-seven-year-old Roger Federer, as if throwing 37-year-old as an adjective in there makes your argument stronger. But I'm not so sure it does, especially when you have Ivo Karlovic, who's now 40, uh, getting to the fourth round of a Masters, something he hadn't done for eight years. Uh, granted, not not that tough of a draw, but, I mean, the, the, the aging rules are just are different, and I don't think we have a good grasp on what they are. Um. On that note, I do want to talk about Rafa. He he had to withdraw, as I've said, probably four times already on this episode. Um, he got through a tough match against Kachanov, and it sounded like maybe that was a winnable match for Kachanov, but I didn't get a chance to watch it. So he ended up not playing the semifinal at all. And he has a long record from especially the last couple of years of pulling out of hardcore events before they start or retiring in a hardcore match, withdrawing mid-tournament at hardcore events. Um, usually there, there's at least a story, if not a quote from Rafa after the fact, saying that the, the hard court heavy tour is hard on his body, which, which results in some of these withdrawals and his, his lingering knee problems. Um, do you think this is something that Rafa just needs to take a different approach to? I mean, he, he, he's showing up, he's traveling like he's playing the full tour, but his body isn't letting him. I mean, is it time for... Rafa in his early 30s to just say, I can't do this anymore. I'm going to stop trying. I don't, I don't think so. No, I, I think there's something curious at work here where he's, he's sort of the victim of his own success. Like he, this seems to come late in two week tournaments and he's playing late in two week tournaments because he's playing really well early in two week tournaments. And if he didn't, have that much success early he wouldn't be putting as much wear and tear on his on his knees so i don't know exactly what that suggests like is he better off at one week tournaments? should he play fewer should he only play the slams among the two week tournaments but if he's getting to quarterfinals and semifinals at these big events then he's he's doing something right on the surface that is supposedly his downfall and so I, under, I understand the predicament for him and why he's not just, you know, completely tearing up his schedule. Uh, if he were in the first or second round against, you know, relatively uh, outmatched opponents withdrawing or retiring, then you wonder what's the point in the first place. But if he's getting to the semifinals of the U.S. Open and, and you know, maybe sticking around in a match longer if he had um, – if he had won the first set tiebreaker instead of lost it, if he's if he's getting a chance to face Federer in a semifinal at a at a Masters, and then can't quite make it to that match, but but did get 
to the position where he could decide whether to play it, then I can see why it's a very close call for him. I mean, he just made the final of the Australian Open two months ago. Of course, he thinks he can play on hard courts and, and do well on hard courts. And in fact, he was pretty dominant at that tournament until he ran into Djokovic in the final. So, yeah, I don't think there's a clear answer here for him about how to proceed. Yeah, that's that seems to be a good summary. That um, I mean, I, 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 I didn't I didn't mean to imply that he can't play at this level since obviously he can. He's winning most of these matches. Um, I just what 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 strikes me as a little bit strange though is it, he always wants more clay. I mean, that that seems to be where the narrative always goes. Like back in the day, you could play almost the entire season on clay court events. Um, you didn't have to... It wasn't such a hardcore dominated circuit. And the fact that Nadal is still at least... I mean, theoretically in the running for number one at almost any time uh, means he's probably going to keep showing up for the hard court events. But I wonder what... Since, Carl, you've thought about the schedule a lot... I mean, it seems like if we were to have more clay court events than is are currently on the the main schedule, you'd end up having a more fragmented tour. Like you'd have more weeks where there were there were multiple events going on in different parts of the world. Is um, I, I would just happen to be looking at the at Alberto Barrasategui from the mid nineties. I think the year he made the Roland Garros semifinal or final ninety four or ninety five. I think he played. Almost nothing but clay courts the entire year. Uh, finished the year at number seven or number eight, something like that. But aside from the U.S. Open, after after Roland Garros, he was he was playing clay court tournaments where there were hard court tournaments elsewhere, and that's not something that's an option anymore. Um, do you think we'd be better off if the tour were more fragmented, where you could you could be a clay court specialist and just play clay courts nine months of the year? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think that the vast majority of players showing that physically they can... uh, We've got a caller again trying to call into the show. (laughs) It's just... uh, This is not a (laughs) call-in show. I'll I'll just direct them to the Tennis Abstract podcast call-in show, the the one we're launching soon. Um, Yeah, it... What was the question? (laughs) (laughs) Fragmented. Oh yes, fragmented brain. Nine yes, play absolutely. So, I, I silenced my cell phone, but I, I still have a landline in 2019. I I think that most players can can last on different surfaces, can can make it through tournaments without retiring or withdrawing, can play full schedules on all of them, and can compete on all of them in a way that at least is different than how we seem to remember past. Uh, past incarnations of, of the ATP tour. And, you know, we see team winning on a hard court is, is maybe fresh in my mind when I say it, but I, I think we, we've talked about Cecchinato being able to at least play lots of events off of clay in, in a way he hadn't before. And in a couple of them showing good results and, and maybe he'll build on that in the future. Uh, we occasionally see some players we think of as more successful on fast courts, finding success, on, on slow courts, including clay courts here and there. And, you know, they stick it out. And and it part of the fun is seeing players trying to adapt. So, I don't know, being letting players always 
choose their favorite surface, I think ends up limiting their growth and limiting the the fun of the sport and seeing the same players compete in, in different settings around the world. Um, I think if there were lots of examples of players saying, like, my body can only handle X surface and and their results kind of backing that up, then that might call for a different, more drastic kind of change. Yeah, the, the other thing I was thinking about with Nadal's withdrawal this time and the ensuing discussion along these lines is this is something of an, a, a new topic because you have these players who are playing into their 30s and having the sorts of problems that used to end careers in the old days. Uh, and old days can mean, I don't know, 20 years ago or less at this point. Um, I wonder if we should discount those concerns a little bit because if if you're choosing to play past 32 or 35 or whatever, the, whatever you consider the magic number to be when tennis careers used to end, um, I mean, I don't, I don't think that the tour needs to to adjust to your needs, um, knees or needs, uh, because not, not that long ago, players weren't lasting this long anyway. I mean, it's, it, maybe you could have managed the, the, your schedule better earlier in the career. I, I don't know exactly what the implications are, but, but it seems like a, a concern that, that's modern and maybe fleeting because we have this generation of players who are lasting into their 15th, 20th, full year on tour yeah i mean nadal turns 33 in june and he he wouldn't have quite the option that federer had to the last two seasons just cut out the clay season entirely because if nadal cut out the non-clay season entirely it'd be a much bigger share of the events and weeks and points and dollars but he certainly could choose to play less of it and still because of all the points he would get fully fresh on clay uh, and maybe at the events he's he's handpicked as best meeting his abilities off of clay could still be very competitive for keeping a, a ranking in the top two or three uh, and having a good seed at all the slams. So he, he does have an option to tweak things somewhat and the tour does make accommodations for players as they get older, especially the more accomplished players in terms of being able to, to skip more masters events, for instance. And yeah, I mean, Rafa could, I'm trying to think what would be a very Rafa schedule. It'd be something like playing only the Australian, maybe exhibitions leading up to it, then Indian Wells, then clay, then um, probably just exhibitions leading up to Wimbledon. Then one of the two, North American hardcourt masters leading up to the U S open, play the U S open, maybe play Shanghai and or Paris and then the tour finals. And that that's a pretty light schedule. Yeah. Another alternative that might be a better parallel to what Federer has been doing the last couple of years is just to skip everything before the clay season. Uh, I mean, it's, it seems extreme to think of Rafa not going to Australia or Indian Wells or Miami and, I agree. What you said sounds more like what Rafa would do, but if we're thinking about what what his true options are, like he could he could have a four month, maybe five month off season if he. I guess he'd want to warm up of some kind, but if he started in Monte Carlo, played the entire clay season, played maybe Queens and Wimbledon, and then played 
not a full hardcore schedule, but maybe the hardcore tournaments you mentioned, that's certainly an, enough opportunities to stay in the top three or so. Maybe it would be tough to be number one if someone like Djokovic was, was dominating the tour, but, um, but he would have a lot of time off. He would miss one entire hardcore season uh, and certainly be in good shape for, for the clay court season, which would matter the most for him. Yeah, I really like that idea. And yeah, you add up Australian Open plus two Masters, and it's pretty similar to French Open plus two mandatory Masters uh, in terms of skipping things. And yeah, it'd be it would be a neat kind of divide to the to the season form. I think Monte Carlo would love that if they knew they had the first appearance of Rafael Nadal every year. That would be a tremendous marketing boon for them. Yeah. So one one last topic before we switch over to the the women's results in Indian Wells. One of the the true oddities of the the men's draw was the the run of Miamir Chekmanovic. I didn't think to check the pronunciation before, so apologies to Serbians and others who know better what I should have just said. Um, but this is a guy who's I mean, a very promising young player. I think he won a junior slam. He's 19 or something now. I'm not sure. Um, but got in as a lucky loser to the main draw. Because someone withdrew late, his lucky loser spot got him a first-round bye. So didn't have to play the first round. Um, second round, let's see. Oh, I had it right. In the, played Maximilian Martyr in the second round. Um, Laszlo Gera in the third round. This is a clay court guy who had, had to get a wild card because he was so lowly ranked just six weeks ago. Um, won by retirement over Yoshi Nishioka in the fourth round. And thus made it to the quarterfinals where he lost to Ronit. So one of the weaker runs to the quarterfinals of pretty much all time, I would think, for for a player who didn't have a seed. And what what makes it particularly worthy of discussion, I think, is the fact that he got in with the lucky loser spot. And this happens at most Indian Wells in Miami. Some One of the seeds withdraws late. Someone from qualifying gets the extra lucky loser spot where they they not only get into the draw but they get a a first round bye but the fact that someone could take advantage of that and run to the quarterfinals with all the points and money that implies especially without having to face anyone particularly good um i mean let's put on our our deadline journalist hats and think like is there is that this something that needs to change i mean is this something we should be we should be concerned about that a player who loses in qualifying can get a a gold plated road to the quarterfinals. I mean, can you see a way of fixing that? Are you okay with that, Carl? So first I just want to establish some facts that I I don't know for sure. Um, How many players are in the pool for being chosen as lucky losers? How many losers in the last round of qualifying? At Indian Wells, there's 12, I believe. Okay. So, you know, the the biggest risk here seems to me to be a skewed incentive of, like, is it advantageous for certain players to lose in the last round of qualifying? And it seems like if the pool is that big, then probably it still doesn't make sense. I don't know. What, what do you? How do you think that shakes out? Well, I, I, I hope someone will correct me if I'm wrong about this, but at the slams, um, 
lucky losers are de determined by a random draw of the top four ranked first round losers. But at ATP events, they're still taken on straight ranking. So the Gimel stop rule you, does not apply outside of slams. I believe so. Yeah. So it, it looks like uh, Kachmanovich was actually the, the third lucky loser in. Barankis was first, Rublev was second, and Kachmanovich. They were the three seeded players who lost in the final round of qualifying. Um, so if, if I had been... If I had been Kachmanovich, I wouldn't have been thinking, ah, oh, it's okay if I lose, I'm still going to get in, because he probably wouldn't expect that. And he did have a very hard-fought uh, final qualifying round match against Marcos Giron, who had a nice run of his own. But had he been in, in Barankas' place, then, I mean, Barankas himself would know, probably going to get in, especially with some of the lingering injuries among players uh, in the 32-player seeded pool. What would be the downside to not to like waiting to assign any qualifiers or lucky losers until like the deadline for knowing how many spots were open, I guess? Well, the downside is that you can't do it at these tournaments because the if if a, a player with a buy withdraws at the last minute, the first round is already over. Right. So most of the qualifiers and maybe even some lucky losers have already played. And are there players, sorry, some of these questions are going to seem dumb probably to some listeners and some of them might have the same question. You know, there's like the, the last player out of the, um, of the draw because of the, the ranking cutoff. And some of those players are not in the qualifying tournaments. Is it practical to get any of those into those slots? Someone who didn't play qualifying? Yeah, because I guess they're not around to be slotted in, right? Yeah, unless unless they're playing doubles, then I wouldn't think they'd be around. Right, and I guess that doesn't happen that much. Yeah, it seems like a really hard problem to solve. I mean, I, I thought there was one tournament recently that addressed this directly by moving around the seeds, which would create its own logistical problems, but at least would would mean that maybe someone who has a higher ranking gets the spot, which we would feel like they'd be more deserving of than someone who lost in qualifying. Well, that's what you do if uh, if a seeded player withdraws early enough. And I think that's the big issue is, uh, yeah, so if, 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 uh, if the qualifying has started and the number one seed withdraws from the tournament, then whoever the 33rd seed would have been becomes a becomes a seed and gets a buy and some players are shifted around to make it basically make the draw what it would have been had that number one player not been in it in the first place so i, I think usually like one of the top one of the last 16 seeds becomes one of the top 16 seeds one of the last one of nine through 16 gets one of the one through eight spots and so on so they can they can do a lot with the draw um before first round matches start the issue comes up especially at Indian Wells when you can have a, a first round singles match on day one and some of the seeds aren't going to play until day four. Uh, once, once first round matches start, then the draw can't be touched except to put in lucky losers as necessary. Okay. Here's one proposal. Instead of one lucky loser getting that golden spot, two lucky losers play an additional first round match to determine who wins that, who advances to the second round. Yeah, I like that a lot. 
at, at least they have that player would play as many matches as the other qualifiers. Um, what would you think about if if after the tournament has started, if a player with a buy withdraws? What if you just treat that as a mid-tournament withdrawal and makes that makes that a walkover for the the player he would have faced in the second round? In the second round, yeah, um, yeah, that occurred to me too. I like that too, but it's it's sort of like you know why have the lucky loser system if not to fill in gaps in the draw, and you're also making the win, you're making that first round match a, a golden spot, though at least it's not maybe as as glaring an inequity as lucky loser versus qualifier. Yeah, and in some cases you wouldn't know it was a golden spot when it happened right. if the, the opponent hadn't pulled out yet. Um, yeah, I mean it's it's a tricky situation, and and it's the sort of thing that probably you and I are among the few who care a lot about it because if you're a fan at Indian Wells, you might be bummed out if your favorite player withdraws, but you're not going to care that much about another qualifying versus lucky loser type match on day three when there's so much going on at a tournament like this, just almost like a slam in terms of the number of options of matches to watch at any time. But then it it does have these follow-on effects where now Kachmanovic, who lost in qualifying, let us not forget, he gets qualifier points for our, sorry, qualifier, quarterfinalist points uh, from a Masters, which is going to I would think artificially inflate his ranking for some time to come. I, I only say I think because maybe he really is that good. Maybe he would have gotten to the quarterfinals anyway, but everything we know suggests he's not there yet. Um, he may live up to that ranking, but the odds are against it. So it's yet another way in which the ranking system gets gets skewed, and in this case, in a pretty big way for the next 12 months. Yeah, and, and it's often the extreme cases that prompt us to talk about something like this because you still he still had to win three matches to get to quarters. In his case, that included two unseated opponents, one of whom retired after a set. And the one seated opponent is a guy we talked about in a recent episode, Jere from also from Serbia, who amassed his seating almost entirely from clay court results. So it 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 couldn't have gotten much easier even after he got that buy, even though it's really the buy that we're talking about. Yeah, I mean in most cases the buy is not that big of a deal. I mean, Andre Rublev got one as well, and we're not talking about him. Barankis got one as well, and he lost to Jan Lennard Struff in the second round. Um, forgetting what exactly happened to Rublev in the second round. Um, he, he beat Hasse in the second round and then lost in the third, it looks like. But um, So yeah, it's really, it, it is a sort of historical accident. We have the inequity of the, the lucky loser spot getting a bye, but then also the the lucky draw that got him from the second round to the quarterfinals, which could easily have happened to someone else who wasn't a lucky loser. And maybe we'd still be talking about it, but probably not as quite as big of an issue. So since we've somehow taken something like 50 minutes talking about the men's side more than I anticipated, I do want to talk at least a little bit in our remaining time about the women's Indian Wells event. Um, We have to start with Bianca Andreescu, the Canadian 18-year-old came into this tournament with a wild card, not even a Jera-like wild card, which acknowledged that his ranking was up that high. Andreescu was was legitimately out of the top 70, I think, coming into this tournament. She'd won a lot uh, earlier in the season, uh, 
had just won uh, the challenger in Newport Beach, had a good result in Acapulco, lost a, lost a close match to Sophia Kennan there. And she just plowed through the draw. Like, no, no easy draw for her. She beat Angelique Kerber in three sets in the finals, Fidelina in the semifinals. Really impressive tournament from her. Um, she was outside the top 150 at the beginning of the year, and now she's number 24 in the ranking, which seems very much deserved to me. Um, let's go straight to the big picture, Carl. We have all of these very young women players who are at least gradually taking over the sport. I mean, Osaka is still 20, I think. She's won the last two slams. Arena Sabalenka is at the very least the number one WTA star of this podcast. Um, Diana Yastrzemska is winning a lot of matches. We had a 16-year-old win, the ITF 60K in Shenzhen this past week. A 15-year-old win in ITF 25K. Also this past week, Andreescu's 18. Does the fact that these women are having so much success so fast tell us something about the last era, that maybe the the post the post Serena era um, of Halep and Pliskova and Kerber and, and all these women... Is this a the final piece of evidence we needed to say that was kind of a weak era, as a lot of people suspected all along? Not yet, I think. Osaka has her two major titles, and Sabalenka has the next 40, I think, by your projection. And Ostapenko... 43. Okay, and Ostapenko... She's going to win all of, all of the 2020s, but that, should, that starts with Roland Garros. Okay. No, 22, because Halep's going to win Roland Garros. Sorry. Okay. No, that, that adds up, definitely. Um, <laughs> and, you know, Ostapenko has won, although, you know, I think you counted as 0.5 based on comments on the show. So they haven't yet, like, taken over the top 10. They haven't yet dominated the slams notwithstanding that Osaka has won the last two. But I think I need to see a little more to to write that that story about the previous generation. Um, there are a lot of multiple slam winners in that generation. And so some of it, I think, is just them sharing, sharing the riches among themselves. Um, but there's definitely a lot of candidates ready to step up and, and do it even this year. I mean, I, Andreescu is just remarkable, as you said, in her rise – just within a few months uh, from outside the top 150. And it really makes me excited to see what she'll do with the rest of the year, let alone the rest of her career. I mean, in this in this group, in this, this bunch in the top 35, she's 18. There's nobody else under 20. So she's really... Um, she's really in a category by herself right now and has, has so much room uh, to grow. So, so that's really exciting. And Isimova is 17. I, I mean, there, there's just so many players who could do it. I just want to see more of them do it. And, you know, Sabalenka for all her promise and all of her, her plaudits on this show, uh, hasn't yet quite done it. And, um, if it could just be maybe that this generation is Osaka's generation until, until proven otherwise. Skidding on thin ice, Carl. That sounded almost like a criticism of Arena Sabalenka. That's not what we do here. <laughs> well, I, I should be careful because, you know, I know there's some very good guest hosts waiting in the wings. So, I mean, yeah, who know better than to say these sorts of things about Sabalenka. Exactly. Who, by the way, I'm not sure whether you even noticed this, Carl, since I know you've been traveling. 
um, Sabalenka and Elise Mertens won the WTA doubles final. You think I'm not checking double scores while I'm traveling? Come on. So that means you did know that? I did know that. And I was – they don't have many – was that their first tournament together? I'm not sure. I know. I, I think maybe they played once or twice before. But Mertens had a regular partner until maybe the end of last year. She was playing with Demi Shores. Yeah, uh, they were a great team. Yeah, I mean, Mertens is an excellent doubles player, especially for someone who is primarily focused on singles. And they beat the number one team, Zinyakova and – so your projection was for doubles major titles by Sabalenka? Well, no, but now that I know about her doubles prowess as well, I feel like we should be we should be starting to talk about the Navratilova records for overall slam titles. Is is that is that Navratilova's record, the overall singles and doubles? Yes. Slam titles. So we'll have to we'll have to do the math and figure out what Arena needs to do. Just Set some reasonable goals for her. Um, now, Jeff and I talked about this a little bit on last week's episode, but I'm curious what you think, Carl. Um, I th- Jeff was pretty negative about Serena's chances of, of bouncing back well enough to win a slam. I mean, we, we didn't see a lot from her at this, this last fortnight. She had a, a really entertaining match against Azarenka, uh, winning that, and then had a good set or so against Muguruza, or almost set, and then seemed to succumb to some kind of illness. So I don't know how much that should affect our our judgment of Serena at this point. But I think Jeff said that his, his estimate was, he thought that Serena had a 20% chance of winning one more slam. Um, I'm guessing, Carl, you'd be a lot more optimistic. What do you think about Serena at this point? Yeah, I think Serena at slams now is a different story than Serena away from slams. So I, I don't – and Indian Wells is pretty far from a slam as as a Masters goes. So in, ter- in terms of her probability of winning at least one more single slam title, uh, 50. Okay. And what, what do you think the most likely venue is for that to happen? Wimbledon. Okay. So you think she's going to beat Sabalenka in the Wimbledon final this year? <laughs> yeah, really her best chance is to start winning a slam title before Sabalenka takes all of them. Yeah, that's that's better. That's the Sabalenka commentary I was looking for. And all our listeners do. Uh, what is your projection for Serena? I, I'm not sure. Um, it, I think that this this tournament kind of fit my expectations in the sense that that we've seen her play some really great matches. I don't expect her to stop playing really good tennis anytime soon. Uh, the question is just how long she can maintain it. And in that regard, I think she's a lot like Nadal. Uh, well, Nadal specifically on hard courts. Maybe this is true for Serena on all surfaces, where like, there's nothing about her tennis that's a concern. Um, but it is about her... I don't want to say fitness, because I'm, I, I'm assuming her fitness level is very high, but... She's had so many injuries over the years. Uh, she had more health concerns when she had her baby. Um, she has more distractions. That's just life with a family. Um, it it just seems like that there's a, there's a lot with every tournament she plays. The age and the accumulated and the accumulated physical toil she's put on her body. It's just less and less likely she's going to be able to go out there and play her best for the six or seven matches that's necessary. Uh, 
So I think this may not be the last time she beats Azarenka in an entertaining match. Um, we Something like Australia might well happen again where she she just blasts through a few rounds and then runs up against a good player having at least a good half a match like like Pliskova did in Melbourne. Um, I mean, I'd probably lean closer to 50%, like like you said, than, than 20 as Jeff did. I mean, I, I think that Andreescu notwithstanding, it is still pretty unstable and or weak. I mean, anyone with a potential to beat Serena could just as easily lose to someone else along the way. So um, we could see the, the path to a title opening up nicely for her. I mean, I guess part of it depends how long she sticks around. I mean, obviously she has a better chance of getting number 24 if she plays 11 more slams instead of playing three more slams. But, I mean, the one thing we know for sure is that every match she plays is is immensely worth watching. I mean, she's she still has the potential to be the best player, uh, probably the best player on tour anytime she steps on court. The question is how long she can sustain that. Um, and I, I asked Jeff about this as well, but I'm curious about your thoughts, Carl. What do you think about Vika at this point? I mean, she, she played pretty well against Serena. Uh, but I mean, in this case, it was just, just two matches for her. She won a match against an outside-the-top-50 player before that. So, I mean, do you see Vika coming back much further than she has into the sort of top 40 range she's at right now? I don't know. I really hope so. Uh, she seems to really be struggling now to to string together wins so you know it's great to say she had a strong match against serena and and uh second jeff's description of it made me really want to seek it out and watch it but um she's just not putting the results together like her last deep run i guess was miami last year so she has a lot of points coming off there if she can't defend her her semifinal slot um and then, you know, we know about her, her personal uh, reasons for having a limited schedule, which also makes it hard to, to rise in the rankings and get easier draws. So I, I guess at any given tournament, she could play her way out of that just by being Vika and one, one of the strong multiple slam title winners I was thinking of from, from that previous generation. But uh, it, it's just not something we've seen from her enough to expect it yeah and and vika is a really interesting data point when trying to make sense of the overall level of the tour as we were talking about when we were talking about the men's game is in general we kind of assume the the level of just the average level on tour to keep improving and there's reason to think that's hasn't been happening on the women's side partly just because serena has been able to drop in and out and dominate kind of at will. But Vika is the other side of that coin. I mean, she was so good. I mean, she she was number one. She won slams. She she looked as dominant as anyone on tour at times. And now that she's missed some time, um, she's come back and she's not even close to there anymore. I mean, as you say, she's had some good matches, but not being able, being able to put together much of a run except for Miami last year. Uh, you wonder if if she's our example of of the tour passing someone by. I mean, it's tough to know how much of that is is Vika not returning to a previous level, and how much of that is the the level itself changing. But uh, it's important to keep her in mind as as well as as Serena when talking about these issues. Uh, and 
last player in this group of sort of uh, this this there's no good way to say this. I was gonna say lingering all time greats. Uh, Venus Williams was defending semifinal points at Indian Wells. She made a surprise run to the quarters and lost to Angelique Kerber there. She she beat Petra Kvitova in the second round and a really impressive win along the way. Um, I know Carl, you're a you're a Venus fan and you're always uh, always keeping an eye on her as a sleeper in these draws. You know, what do you think about Venus at this stage? Yeah, I still see her as someone who could go far in any draw. Uh, similar to Vika, she's had trouble lately stringing together results. Similar to Vika, she's had a pretty limited schedule, so limited opportunities to do it. But, um, you know, she's she's made the third round of the last two slams. On the other hand, she's lost in pretty one-sided fashion in those third-round matches. And... Yeah, I mean, we've just seen her ranking fall precipitously. She had that really strong 2017 where she went deep at all the slams, and she wasn't able to back that up last year. She's not, as a result, getting seated. She's not getting buys, so she had to get to the quarterfinals at Indian Wells the hard way. So, you know, her chances keep falling, but I love that she's still playing and still winning big matches. Given that last week you talked about Sasnovich being able to come back from losing bagel sets to win matches. It was great to see her do that in the the first round in Indian Wells against Petkovic. I mean, she wouldn't have had her, her good run if she hadn't been able to shake off the bagel second set to win the third set 6-3 and, and then go on to win her next three matches before facing Kerber. So, yeah, I think she's, she's still very much a factor and still with her scheduling showing herself to be very motivated to keep competing I think with any former number one, former great champion, there's the question that we posed about Federer in a recent episode of how low would would they let their rankings go while still being game to compete. And, you know, Venus is in the 40s now, and that's in ranking, not age. And maybe there is no limit. I mean, she and Serena have at times had to miss long stretches of play and then see their rankings fall a long way and still been willing to come back. So maybe that means we have Venus indefinitely, and if so, I think that's great. Do you think she could make another slam semifinal? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Most... think of some of the semifinalists we've had at recent slams <laughs> in both the men's and women's side. Given that, of course, I would say yes to the possibility of Venus. Yeah, pretty much anybody in the WTA top 40 or so, uh, plus various former greats are, are in the mix. Um, it is fascinating to look down the the WTA rankings and, and see, I mean, I, I was thinking of Ostapenko specifically because we've talked about her recently on the podcast, but um, players who are ranked above Ostapenko that you don't really think of as slam contenders, but, you know, like Annette Contivate or Kang Wong, uh, players who over the course of the season are better than, than some of these players who we think of as contenders at slams. Um, really tells you that this is it's anybody's game at least in this short window before arena sabalenka takes over entirely um so that that wraps up our hour i feel like that's a good note to end on carl as always thank you for joining me thanks jeff and we'll probably be back in some form a week from now to report on the first several days in miami lots of great tennis to look forward to there um serena and vika and I think Venus Williams are all in action in, in Miami. I didn't look at Venus's place in the draw, but 
as usual, just about everybody worth watching is there to watch with the exception of Rafael Nadal. So enjoy the tennis. Thanks everyone for listening and we'll see you next week.